so canonically, this is what's going around the internet, Jason is a deadite because in one of the movies, and I'm not like a huge fan, so I can't tell you which one, but in one of the movies, he flips through the actual Necronomicon from the Evil Dead movie because they <laughs> borrowed it and had him flip through it, thus proving that in that world, deadites are real and Jason is a deadite because something about his mother maybe flipping through it as well. Yeah, that's what the <laughs> game, the Friday the 13th game is based around, is the shack with the book. <laughs> that's very... There this is go. why people throw around Easter eggs far too much because the implications now that the internet is a thing are wild. Like, did you know that like Kirby is canonically in Doom somehow because of some weird Easter egg that's in it? And they're like, man, like Kirby exists in the Doom verse, so Kirby's been to hell. And well, Kirby is a pretty freaky little dude. So. I mean, fair, but that also then, if that's true, then you look at Smash Brothers, and that means that like the entire Nintendo world exists in the hell of Doom, um, mm. which is yeah, I it's mean, just wild. I'm cool with that. I am too. Kirby but. is like the savior of Smash Bros. He is. He's the main yeah. character. Um, I would also argue, ar- argue, argue. <laughs> I, I would argue. Oh, <laughs> oh he's in like French, man. He's, he's right. He's, no, <laughs> you he can't argue. Like, he sounds like what's his name from? Uh, all I can think of is the, is the the movie title, the escape or the the disaster artist. Who's the actual guy? Tommy. Was oh. Tommy was there, yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, but to what I was going to say is that canon is just garbage, anyways. I don't know why people are like so worried about like canon. I'm like. Okay, cool. Like, yeah. who cares? Like, I like knowing that there's, like, a thing that, like, this is this. Like, the person who created it, this is their specific writing of it. I'm like, I'm cool with that. But also, if a lot of people write a bunch of other stuff about it, I'll read it or watch it or whatever, as long as it's good. I don't yeah. care. So, yeah. I like canon, but the problem with it is that I also like video games that are extremely old that, like, they didn't think about canon when designing it. They just thought, hey, this will sell. So, Resident Evil messed up canon they keep deciding what is and what is not zelda somehow everything is canon and yet none of it's canon at the same time because of timelines i agree they're kind of crap but i also kind of enjoy it because i get to follow along at some oh yeah point. i think people should follow them but i just don't think we should like behold them to like some like the holy scripture of canon at some point, Ruin, you and I need to sit down and I need to try to explain to you my wife's theory about the Zelda timeline and where the new game fits in it because she's gone full deep into, like, here's where it is and this is why and, this, and it's gonna be the end of the timeline and, like, oh, it's, it's, it's wild. Um, but also, as, like, a big comic book fan, canon is a joke. No, like, <laughs> people get so uppity about it, it doesn't mean anything. Canon is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I actually, on one hand, I'm like, your wife and I actually should just sit down and have a debate. But on the other hand, the only situation that your wife and I have had conversation was when my wife was there. And let's be real, she puts me in my place of, like, being a normal person. So sure. I also feel like your wife would not be prepared for me when I'm fired up about a topic. <laughs> your wife terrified my wife. Because, like, you've seen our wives. Your wife could pick up my wife and snap her in half. It doesn't matter how many black belts my wife has. (laughs) Um, She's really nice. So is my wife, however. (laughs) Um, That's fair. No, she's convinced that that the new Zelda game is the end of the Zelda timeline and that... Every, every game after this is going to happen somewhere between this one and whatever the first one was, Skyward Sword. Is that canonically the first one? Um, but yeah, this is going to be the end and the final defeat of Ganon, and everything else is going to be within those two points. I have one argument against that, that that is just terrible business practice, because oh, arguably agree, so was keeping the, it the open-ended is much line. smarter. I agree. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> but also, Breath of the Wild is apparently the big time jump from whatever the next game up. Like, it's like hundreds mm. of years. They've still left themselves in the middle. And whatever. I don't care. I just play the games. So we're like, yeah, that was fun. Neato. I still haven't played Breath of the Wild. but. Mm. And also, like, why is that Get time on. the last time? I don't know. She's, I don't know. She has a whole theory. And when she explains it to me, I'm like, that sounds valid. The only way that could work is if the three timelines were merged into one point. That's what that's what would have to happen. Because for those who don't know, it starts at one game, goes through a few, and then at Ocarina of Time, the theory is that Link actually there's he defeats Ganon. There's that he 
dies and then there's like ganon is not defeated like the whole event is like skirted around and those are the three timelines it splits into because they wanted all of the games to fit together and as we've said before time jumping is stupid yeah but also isn't the timeline where he dies isn't that one like a dead dead end now because it just goes to majora's mask where he's like going through like he's in the afterworld and everyone's going through the seven stages of grief and then nothing there's no other games past that because he's dead i don't know i'm I'm gonna guess so it's been a while since i've like invested in the timeline because after a while like at first when they were like yeah it's all connected i was like oh my god and i was obsessed and then after a while i realized that like it didn't actually make a lick of a difference after a while you started caring about it just as much as our listeners do right now exactly but i'm gonna say no and here's the reason why is that every link is a reincarnation of the previous link like it's the same link being reincarnated so his the idea of him dying he's just gonna be reincarnated there wouldn't be like an afterlife specialty thing i think that's like a fan theory also i might cut some of this up because we just spent six minutes doing an intro with that um guys we are here to talk table talk welcome for joining us uh this is cantrips and coffee we are here in the natural 20 for our side table where we apparently talk everything nerditude and then get into some tabletop concept of the uh episode is that we all came with a topic to discuss and with that what's our first topic i don't know who's going first usually you tell us um, I'll 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 go as tribute or whatever they say in um, you, Hunger you Games. Sacrifice yourself. As yep. Tribute. Put me up. No, I'm that's more not of how like it is. volunteer. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I volunteer. Really, I volunteer. I like sacrifice better. That Fall seems on your lame. Sword. I like. Yeah, they need to be edgier with that. They want to go and get murdered by a bunch of other teenagers. Telling people I volunteer. Come on, that's very like. Well, I mean, it is a pretty messed up society. Turns out the Hunger Game was just making sandwiches. That's why his name is Peter. <laughs> All right. Okay. So to my side table, which was brought up from some stuff that I thought about Star or Starfinder, and I just wonder what you guys think of. How do you feel about the fact that, other than like obviously like cost wise, why they might not do it? Is it cool that there is very rarely anyone other than two legged human, more or less like PCs, right? There's there's nobody that walks on four legs very often. So there's a couple of centaurs. Mostly anthropomorphic is your point. Yeah. They're mostly humanoid bipedal creatures. So I thought about this real hard. Like harder than I probably should have. Because I, I decided to go the route rather than just like, oh, people are lazy. Uh, it's easy to make up different types of humanoids. Uh, but I decided why there probably isn't. Because you then need to redesign your entire like world and how it functions just by mm-hmm. that simple change of how your beings like transport. Because even if you give them four legs, you don't have stairs anymore. Uh, like escalators are going to need to be like larger. Uh, like, what do their clothing look like? How do they wear? Pa- if you were going to put pants on a dog, where do you put the pants? Is it on all four legs up to mid chest? Is it around the back legs and up? Uh, it's weird. Uh, and it's like the back legs to the mid chest because it's to hide the genitals. Come on, guys. But anyway, uh, like it, it, mm-hmm. that nature of like how your society then works based off of that change gets crazy um mm-hmm. not to mention if you have people who don't have legs and they're like snake beings like the the uh, nagi or sorry the naga in world of warcraft um or the there's snake people yeah the snake people in uh dd uh, but it would change your entire systems and honestly i think a lot of people just aren't wired to make those kinds of like cultural decisions within their game Mm. they want something that their players can come in have some kind of basis of like this is normal and then spread out from there i would love to see changes though so my canadian standoff (laughs) you got it pal i came at it from yeah like a player immersion standpoint where it's like to me it's a lot easier to think about what i want my character to do and how they would do it when I'm coming at it from like a baseline two arms, two legs, walks like this kind of mentality. But on the flip side of that, I think that what's in the book is a a baseline that like you could easily homebrew out of. Like I've had people like uh, Ruin said, do the centaur thing in a game 
I've had a person who played like just a, a spirit like with no ethereal form that possessed like objects and that's what they were like in. I've had people play like demon characters that fly around with wings. Not a lot of like you're right with like uh, like multi-legged creatures or like <laughs> insect type things and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, they're oddly anthropomorphic, aren't they? Like yeah. two legs, two arms, or like really into the the like uh, fantasy type thing where they fly. That's like another really popular one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was along the same lines as this, and I was going to say, you know what, what Kate said, but like more from the player perspective. Which is that, like, I think it's because it's harder to relate to and describe your actions because you would have to consider how they would move with that type of body system, right? Like, two legs and two arms is very easy on a human level. I would even argue that, like, with your flying creatures, that's pretty easy to understand because they can basically move wherever they want with their wings. But the second that you have to consider, like, they're slithering along or they're using six legs, it's now all of a sudden, like, mm, how would they shamble up that? Or could they jump normally or things like that? I just feel like it's almost due to a disconnect between player or GM, to Kate's point, and said being. I think also, uh, and the other, this is the other point that I came up with, too, is that mechanically it would make it more difficult to balance because if you have animals that have different numbers of legs, your speed is naturally going to be wildly different more than just like, oh, dwarves are five feet slower than a regular person. Um, also then, like, weapons. You know, if your person has wings instead of arms, can they wield a sword? Um, if they're, you know, if they have four arms, do they get four weapons as opposed to two? And just like from a purely mechanical standpoint of like how do you balance this um, I think it makes it hard to make it fair for all players without making it like oh obviously I'm going to pick the thing that has the most limbs that's just the, the best choice combat wise and I can see somebody out there saying well yeah but we have monsters that have multiple legs and move at different Those speeds and stuff, but, but they're monsters and their stat mm-hmm. blocks are already condensed to like bare minimum so there's al- already a lot less that you have to consider when running a monster Mm-hmm. Plus, players don't play monsters, right? The point is to overcome those odds, and the DM sets that. So fairness doesn't really come into that, because they're already going to be tweaked to be whatever your party specifically is geared to deal with. Mm-hmm. The one place yeah. where I'd really argue for more wacky limb choices is in, like, battle mechs and stuff. Oh yeah, you're having like that in yeah. a mm-hmm. in a system, but also detriments. Thing is, yeah, detriments to go along with it though. Yeah, right. Or damage. Yeah, to yeah but no. Question. Like if you have multiple arms, then <laughs> yeah. you're heavier or yeah. you're slower. Because yeah. To answer your question, Jaden, I don't see it as problematic that ninety percent are humanoid. I think it's an accessibility thing that just seems natural. I would say that, yeah, I totally agree with all your things. Mechanically, design-wise, this would be a lot more complex. But I think you could say, like, okay, really, at the end of the day, an eight-legged spider that's blown up, we'll just say that it moves as fast as a human because it's big. It can't move as fast as when it's a tiny spider. It's harder when you're talking about, like, cheetah people or, like, wolves because those are roughly human size and they can move significantly faster than we can. But you could just probably knock that down. Or that's their one special thing they get to do, which you could argue, like, you know, each class has their own crazy thing. Like, yeah, most people can only move so fast, but then a barbarian's going to get, like, 100 feet of movement through rage eventually at crazy moments. Or, you know, you can fly 50-foot speeds, and then other people only have 30-foot wing speeds and other things like that. So the diversity there also agreed it would add complexity, which I don't even personally always like. But I think if you just said, it doesn't really matter the difference of what you are. You just have, like, one or two cool things. Like, every character gets a cool thing. So an orc gets to be awesome because it gets to pop back up with one HP. A spider person gets to be cool because they use two of their arms, and they're just a little bit better at multi-attacking, and they have swords, like, strapped to their arms. (laughs) Or their arms are naturally gigantic swords, which is a monster that I saw in somebody's design thing in a video I was watching. And I think it's the coolest idea for a monster is spiders with giant sword arms for the two arms that they swing around <laughs> but you could do that as a character too i think yeah. if you didn't just go super hand wavy with it though everything you guys say is totally correct and then or if you were gonna dive into it it'd be a lot more complicated and probably not worth the effort overall all right well you know i've been thinking a lot about uh session zeros and whether or not you should use them 
or you know if they're actually purposeful um you know i, I find like especially with people it's they're more invested in tabletop games like are they actually worthwhile um my background on this is uh you know for the last year we've been recording this podcast uh i've been playing tabletop mostly through this i don't know if i've ever actually played outside of this and uh, i've been wanting to recently with one of my friends and not really knowing how well it fits with my lifestyle currently so i was like hey let's do a session zero as like a soft tease of like would this actually work in my life right now but outside of that i've never done a session zero what do you guys think of them uh, well, first off, if you're not sure what a session zero is and what they should include, stay tuned for our Patreon because uh, Jane and I talk all about that in our special Patreon exclusive sidecast. Um, <laughs> However, because you're not there yet, I, I you're actually onto something candid that we should talk about, which is what is a session zero? Sure. Um, uh, so, yeah. So, ahead. a session zero is typically uh, a meeting before the campaign actually starts where usually things like character creation come up um, and then just like discussions about like expectations for the game. Um, what kind of themes are you interested in? Are you wanting something that's combat heavy, roleplay heavy, combo of the two? Um, as well as just conversations about like what are you comfortable with? Because we want to make sure that everyone at the table is having fun, not just one or two people, um, and all that kind of jazz. Uh, personally, in that kind of vein, I think that you should have a session zero, um, a, a bigger session zero with those kinds of discussions about like what are you looking for in this game and what are you comfortable with anytime you're playing with new people, uh, just to get everyone on the same page. Character creation, I think anytime you start a new campaign, a session zero is fun, just so you can kind of see, like, okay, what kind of characters is everyone making? Hey, maybe I can make my character have some kind of relationship with your character, whether it's co-workers or arch enemies or whatever. I think it's just a cool way to have those dynamics set up and kind of know where everyone is at before you walk into campaign day one. So, for me, I'm a big fan of session zeros. I think you should do them often. I always felt that they kind of naturally just came up when inevitably... I mean, maybe this is because of when I we started playing where, like, we were young and the books were expensive and only one person had them, so we <laughs> all ended up meeting anyway mm-hmm. to create the characters with the books. And, like, I still feel like that kind of ha- has happened naturally whenever we played outside of the podcast anyway, in my recent memory. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it doesn't have to be a big official thing either. It's not like you're sitting down to sign a contract or something. Yeah. It's just like, let's all hang out. We'll get the character sorted. That way everybody kind of has a feel for what everybody else is playing and how it's going to go. If you have questions about the rules, it's like perfect time to ask mm-hmm. them. I like, yeah, I'm a big fan of them, but I'm also a big fan of just making it pretty casual on the down low. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that can be valuable, like especially if you know who you're playing with, and mo- lots of people usually do, right? You play with the same people consistently or something like that, or you know the people you're playing with will just generally pipe up in the moments that they need to and stuff like that. It's not a huge issue. I think the only time I'm big on new- probably worrying about them is if it's really new people, or like you just said, just for getting together and making some fun characters. And I think a super fun thing, which is something I've said to Cade about doing a um, one is have a little bit of combat in it because it's just fun and everyone gets to actually play the game a little bit. Especially if you do do a more heavy style one where you are talking about specifically what people do and don't want in the game and there is some more serious stuff. It's just a nice way to lighten the game back up with like a really nonchalant, don't do anything crazy, just give them a, you know, some kobolds to fight or something like that. Super non-issue, go and kill these things. Yeah, yeah well, that's something Actually, we did that once where it was like it was just like a pit fight, like a you gotta mm-hmm. fight a tiger in like a pit to get your freedom. <laughs> yeah, well, that's something you suggested when we recorded that episode of the side. I'm gonna call it a side cast because I think that's fun. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I hadn't considered that. So when I did session zero for my home game, um, I you know threw some knolls at them and told them, yeah, you know, beat these guys up. I'll give you experience for them. Doesn't matter. But just like get to know your spells. Yeah, because I was playing with a bunch of. Uh, people who had never played before and my wife who's playing a druid was playing circle of the uh, the land uh decided that that wasn't the circle she liked she thought she was going to play more spells and not wild shape in combat and decided like no i want to turn into a bear and mess people up i don't like being squishy and from the back so she ended up changing the circle of the moon after that and then was good to go for our first real session 
So I think it's a good way to for new players to kind of test out what they've built so far and see if that's actually what they want to do. And if not, then they have time to change it up rather than having to explain halfway through a campaign why you went from being a warlock to being a ranger. So that's actually a really good point that I'd never considered was like a trial run of your character. Because mm-hmm. I've done it before where I created a character and it wasn't exactly what I thought. And we've always retconned it after the fact, but that actually sounds like a way better way to do mm-hmm. it. Um, where I come from on this is I've never done one. Um, and obviously I'm interested in trying one, but uh, in my previous game's history, especially with Cthulhu, I find if you're trying to get people together to play and they're independently making their characters, there seems to all, always be some sort of weird overlap, right? Like mm. people take the same skills as each other and then all of a sudden they're lacking a core value yeah. in their group. And so I, I wonder if a session zero would be a good way to just hash that out of like, oh, you're taking um, a high firearms. Well, maybe I don't need that. Then maybe I should take brawl or maybe I shouldn't have investigate over here or something like that. So mm-hmm. I, I'm really interested in that aspect. Um, I don't really like it when I like I like well-rounded groups. I don't like groups that have a lot of overlap because then there's inevitably the point where they're like, I don't know what to do right now. And none of us have the proper skill. Also, on the flip side of that, it's good for the person running the game because then you know what they're all using at the same time, what their capabilities are, and then you can tweak certain things that they either couldn't get past or would just breeze past because they got, like, three tanks or whatever. Yeah, I lean more towards that way. I'm not a big fan of, like, oh, man, we have to make sure that we have our range DPS or melee DPS. or Like, I I don't like that. I'd rather people play the character that they want to play because they want to play it, not because they were trying to fill a gap. But, yeah, like, it would give me an opportunity, like, okay, I'm probably not going to throw something that's a big damage sponge if you're playing a bunch of, you know, low-level spellcasters that don't put out a lot of damage, and if they get hit, they just, they're toast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's just running. Go ahead, Jade. Oh, I was just going to say, I think that's just, like a, a general tactic of running right like if they go real mono playing then you just come up with something give them more potions if they need or something like that like just yeah. something quick and easy to solve their issues that they're not you know that they're lacking in but it is nice to have a cohesive party it does make it easier to yeah. know that okay i don't need to give them the weird guy that's always like why is this guy always around with potions like it's kind of strange yeah. that he just pops up with potions, potions but here we go Thought twist the potions were mutations <laughs> Potions. Man, I've been playing Diablo 2 Remastered lately, and like, oh, I have about so... four character stash tabs full of potions. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I, you know, I, it's from a player perspective where I don't like where there's big gaps. Um, mm-hmm. More specifically, I don't, I just don't like when people are like, "Oh, you're playing that? That sounds dope. I'm gonna play that too." And so, well, that's my <laughs> idea. <laughs> but uh, see, I don't run just, into that. Yeah, as you a know what? Heavy guy. Because, like, no one's going to make the exact same character as you. Maybe they feel the same role, but, like, again, as a roleplay guy, it's just like, yeah, you're not going to have the exact same backstory as me, so I don't really care. Yeah. But just that a one, quick... Hunter, pro- oh, was... You go ahead, Jaden. Yeah, I just wanted to know, are you an only child? No, I'm not. Okay. I was a child, I was <laughs> a child that was out. once sent to, my, uh, sent to my bedroom because I refused to share the Play-Doh because I just got it out and my sister wanted it. And now, forever in my life, it bothers me when people want the same thing at the exact same time that I do and I have issues and I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say that that totally happened in the last big Cthulhu game that we did where we had, like, not really a session zero, but like comparing characters right before the game started. And one of the people playing saw the like ridiculous weapon that the other one had and was like, huh, I'm actually changing my character into this. And it was just like, oh, okay. Yup. If I remember correctly, it was the same person who had previously done that to me in D&D, so. <laughs> maybe, it's, maybe it's a them thing, maybe it's a me thing, but It wasn't on. me. <laughs> Hey there, friends. It's Ruin, and I'm here with Cade. Hi, I'm still Cade. We're just here to say thanks for giving us a shot and uh, listening. During our refill, we wanted to take a moment on top of that to say we've got some social media. You should check it out. Join us in some conversation. And while you're at it, maybe hit that subscribe button. Yeah. 
if you'd like to take a little bit more time, we would really appreciate it if you could rate and review us on whatever your favorite podcasting platform is. Uh, it helps us immensely with the mystical algorithms created by the elder gods of social media, and uh, it helps us push the show to more people. Yeah, we're having a lot of fun doing this, and we hope you are too. But we'd like it if more people could join us, so go ahead and do those things. We also have an email address. You can shoot us an email at cantripsandcoffee at gmail.com. If you want to maybe suggest your favorite coffee or your favorite tabletop system that we haven't tried out yet, we're always looking for more suggestions and would love to hear some from you. You may have also noticed that we're running out of topics on our side table conversations, so maybe shoot us a question that we could talk about there. As an added bonus, you can also look forward to some contests that we have up and coming. Trust me, they're going to be worth just hitting that little subscribe button. There's also some pretty cool collaborations that we're working on with some uh, some other content creators. It's an exciting time here in the Natural 20, and uh, we want to make it as exciting as we can for you as well. So with that, we're going to jump back into the show. <laughs> All right, who's next? I can go next. Um, so, uh, with the fact, pulling back the curtain a little bit, we are recording this a few weeks before Halloween. Um, so I'm planning some, some spooky sessions for my home game, um, running them through the death house from the start of Curse of Strahd. And I've just been kind of thinking, like, how do you guys create horror and dread and suspense in your games like obviously you can't do jump scares in tabletop role-playing games unless like you have some like hydraulic mechanism in the middle of your table which if you do send me those plans that's awesome um but i'm just curious like how do you create that atmosphere of like i don't know healthy fear uh <laughs> a lot of saving throws all the time <laughs> like <laughs> You're gonna die if you don't hit a 15. Go. <laughs> um, as somebody who is used to running Cthulhu, um, my tactics usually involve one, a lot of like body horror because it grosses me out, but I think it also is like very tense for the majority of people, which is why Hollywood abuses it a lot. Mm -hmm. um, outside of that, though, to me, there has to be some sort of like risk reward right like there has to be like the pursuit or overhanging of the looming threat that like if you take the wrong step you know that it's not going to go your way right like and if it's it goes back to our conversation about steamrolling and i think in a horror based game you have to feel like there's almost the opposite right like when you're steamrolling you feel like you're always going to win in a horror i feel like you have to be realistic that any moment you could lose hmm. I uh, feel like another one is uh, like taking away the things that make them feel safe so like great example is let them pick out some cool stuff to start with and then 20 minutes in something happens and it gets yoinked away from them and now they have to like fight out of what was gonna be a cakewalk but with nothing now Are you perhaps but give referring them clever to... things to, to like get around that right are you perhaps referring to a crate that is full of many explosives that was blown up? Yeah, I might be referring to that one. <laughs> At least we <laughs> served it. I'm also thinking of just like the classic horror video game thing, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You start off as the cop with all the guns in your trunk, and then the zombie pushes you down a bunch of stairs, and you lose your vest, and now you don't have anything. Another one, too, that you used in our last big Cthulhu game, Ruin, is the... And it kind of like... It almost is like doing the jump scare in the tabletop games, but making it like emptier than you expect. You, I think when you're playing tabletop, you expect every single room to have something super special and important for you. Mm -hmm. And like when there's nothing there and then you start to get careless and then you fall into the trap, you actually do get caught off your guard. But the DM has to be like vigilant about like, do you open the door or... Are you just like touching the handle? And if they like say something, it has to like go through with it. Like I walk up and open the door and then the trap goes off and you can't like backpedal on that. My favorite question is which way do you turn the handle? Because if nobody's heard it before, they're like, what? Um, I've got two. So quickly off of what I just said there on, I think 
part of what um, selling what Jody was saying there would be consistently playing at the same tone other than when you are exactly in the actual heat of a moment because if you're like if you're explaining a room more deeply someone's like okay something bad's gonna happen in this room right like it's like in a horror movie nothing happens in the porch where there's just coats on the wall but it always happens in a room where you know there's a giant elk head and there's all this crazy features (laughs) so the more you can play that down and so either just explain every room really big or every room really small but keep your self consistent other than when you are in those explicit moments where they need to feel scared because Mm -hmm. then that'll feel more jarring with them and then i think just another really good one of that's super common in all horror is the less they know that they know in a certain sense you know what i'm saying the scary it'll be they need to know that their stuff's wrong they need to know that they're out of their depth and they they could drown at any moment but they don't know how they're gonna drown or what's gonna drown them or you know how they can get out of this situation the less they can ever know the better but they need to again know that they're in a tense situation can't be like oh the monster's in the back but i never actually explained that he's anywhere that they could ever kind of see it so they don't know there's a monster there they're only going to be surprised until you finally poke them out but if you know a a sight of a tail you know kind of alien style yeah the first one a sight of a tail a you know a ridge of a head but they don't ever get a lot and then when it's finally time for the big stuff to happen then it pops out at them well, to yeah, that on point, that point, actually, you go ahead. I went oh, ahead last time. Thanks. Um, I was just going to say, to that point, um, you know, the red herring is great because you can throw things in that seem like they have purpose and seem really ominous. And so the players are, like, running it through their heads about when's it going to be, what is it, and then sometimes it doesn't play off, right? And, and that's okay because they did the work on themselves to hype it up. Uh, I was just going to say also to the not letting them know what they don't know. In a horror game, I would like hide the, the stats and the rolls more than in a normal game. Like when they have to make a saving roll or saving throw, like don't say the DC and like don't say how much health the monster has and stuff like that. Whereas in like a normal game, you might give them that information just because you're just kind of playing to have fun. But in a horror game, you never want them to know how close or far they are from victory or defeat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the stakes should be high. You shouldn't be able to kill the monster until you've done like everything at your you have like at your expense, which is any good horror movie, right? Like, okay, we've shot it, we've burned it, we've beat it. At this point, we gotta nuke it, kind of thing. That's when you finally kill it, or you know, like you make that big move. <laughs> oh, we put it into a chamber and then we drop the pressure, and so it collapses in on itself, or something like that. It's got to be mm-hmm. a move that you could only ever make when they finally have reached the end of it, because if it's not hard fought it's not going to really feel like a horror especially if you have a monster but you could do the same thing with like you know the a, a sinking ship they shouldn't be able to fix the ship in the first five minutes of you playing it it should take the whole session to fix the ship and yeah. they could drown at any time and and something that i just thought of that kind of is with that idea like the whole scenario is those clues early on that like something's amiss that like they don't see exactly what it is right away like you know it's like what's the, the mystery of like the Loch Ness Monster and Sasquatch it's the fact that we don't have a clear sight of them the second we would have a clear sight of them we'd be like yeah it's not real right so like in your horror setting put the the clue or like the print in there that they have to unpack what it is don't just like there's the monster right off the start my favorite Mitch Hedberg joke is uh, Sasquatch is real he's just blurry there's a large out-of-focus fo- <laughs> monster roaming the woods. I think that's funny. On the flip side of that, though, sometimes a good demonstration of how deadly the things you're about to go up against are, like, in the lab, you see the creature break out and, like, kill ten highly armed security guards while your level one Cthulhu characters are going in <laughs> after them. It's like, that builds the tension pretty well. Yeah. Or you could give it a chance to like grow, and that gives you another chance to step it up. Like um, I can't, I can't remember what it is, but there's one movie where the ship gets eaten by this giant tentacle monster, and they mostly interact with just the outside tentacles. So they think that they're like individual like worm creatures that are eating all these people, but eventually they get to the center of it. And it turns out it's this giant octopus monster that's even more Dude. intense than all of its stupid arms that eat people all over the place. I don't remember what the movie's called, but it's actually not. So they're terrible. on the boat, yeah. And they have the miniguns with the backpacks, right? And they're blasting the tentacles. I can't remember what it's called either, but that's yeah. a classic of the VHS era. Mm-hmm. 
It sounds um, pretty gross. It's yeah. funny, but so like you could give it something like that, or like Alien, it bu- bursts out of a guy's chest, kind of blows everyone away when it's only in its baby form. So it's already scary when it's just that, yeah. and then it when they see it the next time, it's gigantic, and it's like holy. Is that even the same? Oh, I gotta write that down. Is that even the same thing that I've seen before? Like it could be wholly new to them, right? Yeah, but I would even argue that that's the still going back to like the clue, the hint of the monster, because you're only seeing the baby form. Like you're not seeing the mm-hmm. full fledged what yeah. it could be. Yeah. So you're keeping the hint, but you're giving them a big taste of it, even yeah. though it's going to be even bigger the next time. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me. Uh, <laughs> uh, the things that I've come up with one of them was was what Jody said was taking away the stuff that makes them feel safe so I'm kind of planning if anybody's done Death House uh, it's this house that like there's a cult running it and like in the basement there's like monsters and stuff it's fine uh, but when they get to the basement where there's actually enemies I'm thinking that there's going to be like some magical transition they go through and their weapons and their armor disappear um and you can't fight them. You have to avoid them. And it doesn't matter at that point how big and tough you are. You're not going to punch a gas to death uh, without <laughs> being in a lot of trouble. Um, my other... Because they're like... We've done our first session with it. We're going to do our second one here in a week to finish it up. Uh, but my, my favorite question during this one is... So, uh, what's your passive perception? Huh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then don't say anything. Uh, yeah. So I, I like oh, that one, just to kind of breed I, dread. The thing I like about Cthulhu to run off that gate, so Cthulhu has the three levels of success. Mm-hmm. So, like, I have totally pulled the card of, like, they didn't get the right level of success. And so I was like, oh, interesting. And yeah. I, I find that mechanic works really well for that. Okay, all right. Well, the one that I uh, cooked up while we were playing Starfinder is... Uh, like, how do you really differentiate space magic from, like, regular fantasy magic? Uh, is it even differentiated, really? Does it need to be? Like, what are some good ideas for how to make it unique? Discuss. Well, according to George Lucas, it's all about your molecular or cellular levels uh, and the <laughs> a bacteria within your bloodstream that causes magic. I mean, to be fair, that's not much different from the fantasy just explain away like they're born with an affinity for magic kind of thing. Uh, Except in Star Wars canon, in Star Wars canon, it's specifically caused by trees that people live nearby or have access to. Apparently that's in the story. Is also okay, just well, aside a samurai Wars, nerd who was given too much money. Um, anyway. <laughs> he was like, yes, Kurosawa, but exactly. in space. <laughs> Um, That's our phrase for this batch in space. (laughs) Personally, I don't think there really is much of a difference. I think the main difference is what you use it on. Uh, In fantasy, you're probably not going to use your magic on a computer just because they aren't around. Um, But other than that, I think it's... Yeah. It's going to probably change your application of it, but I think that like mechanically it works the same way. It's doing something that physics can't really explain um, for that time period and setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so instead of catapult, you might have crane, so you can pick stuff up and move it because that's <laughs> yeah. way more useful of a spell or yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, something that can allow you to magically hack a computer would be a good idea. But outside of yeah, small flavoring, I agree. Why would it be terribly different overall? It would be cool if you did, but it doesn't have to be. Although calling it technomancy seems like it should be mostly based on messing with technology or like producing technology from thin, thin air. Mm-hmm. Right, like that. The, the the word technomancer makes me think more of. Like the in in cyberpunk, the net running and like uploading the viruses and stuff into technology. See, and for yeah. me, technomancy is just a really talented hacker. Uh, really, because <laughs> that, yeah, I don't know. Like your ability to make a computer do something it wasn't designed to do is really just your ability to program at like a really high level. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, for me, magic is magic, regardless of where it is. Now, like, if you want to say that they somehow get their magic from technology that makes them more in tune with the regular world around them, again, cool, but that that's just flavor of how they get their magic, and then the magic is still magic. Yeah, a wrist launcher that shoots a fireball is still casting fireball. Yeah. <laughs> See, and, I mean, this goes back to, I think, when we talked about DCC in our... I want to say it was our espresso episode. It might have been our side table, but um, to me, it comes down to are are you 
creating the thing to do the task or are you doing the task, right? So like, am I, you just said that the wrist launcher, if it's a wrist launcher that I've created that uses fuel and stuff like that, it's technology. Uh, if it's, I guess, bacteria in my bloodstream that just does it, well, I can't control that thing. I can just harness it. So to me, that's magic. You know, like there's that difference of like whether I can replicate it or if I can just use it. Okay. You know? The creation of like spell scrolls then. That I would say that that is the, the vehicle for the magic not the magic itself like it's it's mm -hmm. manipulating the use of it but it's not creating it from scratch it's, i feel like uh, to make like magic it's on very fine line <laughs> i think it's a conduit right that's you know what arthur c clark goes back to that right yeah, yeah i yeah. i totally agree like i think that really at the end of the day like we even said like what is sci-fi but future fantasy but also arguably what is fantasy but in the past sci-fi like all of it is is just yeah. i think all they are is yeah, the same know. genre just one's in the future and one's in the past and you can explain your different reasonings for why things happen but at the end of the day a grenade launcher is fireball yeah i, I think, think for though, me the, the it's the breaking of like the regular laws of physics for me right like mm. conjuring fire with no source spark or fuel like oxygen yeah um for me that's magic because that doesn't obey the laws of physics as we know them currently um sci-fi yeah creating some device that like i need to load up with fuel it makes its own internal spark and launches out i know there's oxygen in the air to me that's that's science i know that that works um so for me then again magic is like magic is magic regardless of whether it's sci-fi magic or fantasy magic because it still needs to break those basic laws of physics now if you're on a planet where physics are slightly different for some reason or not um i mean that's a little bit more of a twist because like physics are still physics other than like gravity and shit but yeah i actually don't think that that's too far removed from how i stand on honestly like yeah breaking of the laws of physics doing things that you can't really do um that goes to the idea of replicating for me right but um, you know, in terms of like in a system, what is technology? What is magic? I think Starfinder did exactly what I didn't want it to do in a sense, <laughs> which was it was very clearly magic. Whereas I wanted something that was very clearly a world without magic. Feels like in some ways too, magic is uh, kind of out of place in a sci-fi setting unless it's like really powerful because like like we said a grenade launcher is basically fireball but you don't have to be born a wizard to use it so like most things that basic magic would do advanced sci-fi technology could do easier and for the common folk instead of just select people so unless it's like the wish spell and can change reality like what can't technology do better instead you, it's time you actually, travel, not the wish spell. <laughs> <laughs> I just think time travel is the wish spell, guys. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> you might not be too wrong about that. You, I think um, for, for me, like you actually just hit on something that I hadn't considered, which is that like if you have a system that has both magic and technology, technology is like the great equalizer. Right, because yeah. think of like think of DCC where magic is pretty overpowered. Um, it does have its downfalls, but for the most part, it can do a lot of crazy things, which is why they like yeah. plot-wise they like draw it back to be like, oh, there's only so many people can use it. Well, great. Now they have technology that you're right. A grenade launcher is a fireball. Everybody can do it. You're taking damage no matter who you are. Yeah. So why not just be a tanky warrior with lots of HP and just stock up on grenades? See, and again, for me, it's it's the breaking of the laws of physics, right? Like, for me, magic wins because it's always going to be able to do things that technology can't because it breaks the laws of physics. Like, yeah. Like, I had one spell in that the adventure we did that I wanted to use the whole time. I picked it just to use it. It was called Life Bubble, and it creates, like, an atmosphere around you so that you can walk out into space and stuff like that. But it just nice. never came up. And I was like, yeah. dang it. So, like, behind-the-scenes magic, and because this is released after the fourth episode and the review of Starfinder, um, I think it is, right? I don't know. The, the release schedule for this batch is a little funky. So. Yeah. Okay, well, if it's not, spoilers, so, like, maybe skip ahead of this, but um, the key that Cade found, the, the stone, 
all its purpose was originally was to create an atmosphere around him if he didn't have one <laughs> and then when at the end he was like i pull out the stone i was like yes that's the key mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it is i clearly forgot to give you a key <laughs> i didn't feel that at all <laughs> I see, and I, I didn't pick up on that. Way. I legitimately thought it was a very subtle, here's something that might be part of the plot, and I was like, well, I still probably have it. I don't mm. know, why not? It's that good old DM magic that sometimes we think <laughs> about on the spot. <laughs> Let's move along to, like, what else are you guys consuming lately? What kind of media or other sources have you taken in? Um, for me, I've been doing a lot of just research for DMing. Um doing my first foray into that so i've been reading a lot of like you know here's some cool monsters that are kind of fun to throw at your lower level characters or here are you know big baddies that are kind of cool and that kind of thing um i've also been playing Baldur's gate 3 the early access of it nice uh, really enjoying it i would love if they quit patching it so i'd lost all my savings because <laughs> uh, <laughs> i'm getting real tired of that opening cinematic it's really cool but like <laughs> i start it and i go make a coffee um yeah, but sorcerer now, Kate. Sorcerer. Yeah, I know, but like, okay. <laughs> I also don't <laughs> want to play the game, the start of it again. I don't want to finish. Um, yeah, and then been playing a lot of my, my F1 racing because I'm a big F1 junkie now somehow. I don't know how quarantine <laughs> did that to nice. me, but yeah. Are you making the whole racing pod? Like, oh, I have right it. in there? Oh, I have it, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Kate has all these books, like, stacked up. It is, like, you know, a broken old couch cut in half kind of thing. He's got a steering wheel. I'll send you guys a picture. No, man, it's good. Like, I'm set up. Uh, as well. many people would expect, uh, Metroid Dread has, uh, at the time of this recording, it's been out for about a week. Um, I don't have a ton of time on my hands because uh, new job plus masters, all that stuff, life is crazy. Um, but I'm, I, I'm going to guess I'm about 80% complete, and it is phenomenal. Like, I cannot give this game enough praise. The, just, I guess when you take 19 years and advanced technology to come out, you, uh, you understand how the game should work. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, it's uh, it's really good. I'm looking for the forward to the end of it and uh, looking to see what all the hype is about. Because I don't know if you guys know this, but the review scores are killing it right now. So, nice. Yeah, I've heard good stuff. I haven't paid too much attention to it, but I've never haven't heard anyone be like, "Oh, don't buy this game. It's crap." Oh, we're about to get told by Cade. Oh, we've been told. That's <laughs> many years, many years too late. I started uh, Game of Thrones. Oh, wow, that does look nice. I told you, it's good. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. But many years too late, I started watching Game of Thrones finally. Now that the whole thing's out, I'm going to mm. do it all in one chunk. But, buddy, like, <laughs> why don't you just stay away? You, you're... Well, because I'm be watching sad. the good parts, and then I'm either going to skip the end no, or just watch it here's to like the experience thing. it. Here's the thing: it's all good until like the last two episodes. So like you're going to go through this whole thing, and you're going to be like, "How bad can it be? It's real bad." I also but didn't now think... I'll understand the badness. I also didn't think it was as good as everyone made it out to be. I made it to season four because like my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, really wanted me to catch up. And then I did, and then I didn't watch any more of it, because I was like, yeah, no, this is all pretty standard fantasy stuff. Like, It's just consistently decent, honestly. Like, it's fine, yeah. yeah right, exactly. And I find that there's, like, a criminal lack of fantasy or high fantasy content out there. Oh, like, man. a well-produced, yeah. like, good costumes, good budget, good actors form. They're filming very- the HBO Wheel of Time series right now, and I am jacked for it. Yeah, honestly, I was kind of getting hyped for that. I was even like, I have them all like in an old dusty box in my parents' garage, and I was like, oh, really considering digging them out. (laughs) But it's like 13 books. I know, and they're so big. (laughs) Game of Thrones is really political, though, and like, I'm only speaking from knowledge of the the show, because I have not read them, although they're on my shelf waiting to be read. Um, Maybe by the time that George gets around to that last one. Maybe Uh, the afterworld? (laughs) <laughs> Maybe, but um, I think the like the 
the crux of that that series is that it's not about the fantasy it's about how terrible humans are right and like that's I, I get what you're saying that it's not really high fantasy and it's true it's low fantasy for I want to say like 80% of what's on screen it's low fantasy um, but I think that's also why it's good is it's like realistically what's scarier than shitty humans <laughs> not much So, I guess I'm the last one on what I've been watching. Unless anyone has anything else they want to say about Game of Thrones. I do enjoy Game of Thrones, but I have been playing a game that I think everyone of you guys should download because it's free. It was somebody's, like, um, like, I don't know, like, not maybe like a master's, or maybe something like a master's project or something like that that culminated some of their education, and it's called Vedalum, the Golden Horde. Yeah, that's it. V-E-D-E-L-E-M. It's a, like, you build a little, um, like, city, and you gotta mine a couple of simple resources and build a couple of simple guys and get a couple of simple upgrades, and then a Mongol horde comes down on you and tries to just kill all your stuff. So it's like a super fast Frostpunk or any of those city builder kind of games with the end game of surviving a giant horde of guys coming down and attacking you. It's pretty That's fun, cool. and like I said, it's free. It's super deadly, and I love Indeed. stuff like that. There's a um, there's another one that I have, or I've played, that's also really good. I don't remember what it's called, but it's another free game that somebody made. It's where you survive, and it's like a survival game in a desert that's pretty light, but it's really interesting. It has like a lot of thirst um, stuff. I can't remember awesome. what it's called. Yeah. I don't mind builder games like that. Like I love like... Um... Civ and Age of Empires. I'm not like a diehard. Like I'm not the guy who spends like weeks of his life playing it. But like probably once a year, I'll give one a go. Yeah, that's a good part about this one too. Is a round is like usually tops like 20 minutes, so it's like way faster. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's Ruben, almost. I really more think like... you should try Frostpunk too. Frostpunk. Mm, that's There's a sequel coming, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Yes. Yeah. yeah, maybe. And maybe a board game. I feel like there's a board game coming. Ooh, By a board Steam game would be really so... good of that. <laughs> Yeah, I don't maybe. know. It would probably. I just really like it the way it is. I don't need a board game. I just want to play Frostpunk straight up. But I'd yeah, also play weird. a board game. I feel like if a board game was collaborative, that would be fun. Uh, I play collaborative Frostpunk. Yeah, I don't know about Frostpunk, but there's a. They have several Resident Evil games that are collaborative, like board game style, and they are releasing a Resident Evil One board game where you explore the mansion as a team. Cool. That's pretty dope. Yeah. Alright guys, well with that, oh, I'm out I'll of also cough. say, sorry to cut you off, but I'll also say, by the time this comes out, I'll be playing Darkest Dungeon 2, for sure. Because this is coming out after yeah. October, right? Yeah. yeah. Everybody, go check that out. Nice. I'm probably going to try to play around with the first one to see what all the hype is about, but it's I've been told They're going to be completely like different games, so that's really up to you, but the first one's well worth checking out. really good. It's fun. Yeah. All right, well, with that, I'm out of coffee, and that means it's time to run.